So what is the greatest threat to humanity? What is the greatest threat to humanity? You know, every three or four years when we have a new election cycle, this question comes up, doesn't it, in the, in the, the debates? It's one of the questions that they always want to ask. It's one of the questions you always ask really important people like the director of the uh, FBI or the CIA. What is the greatest threat? Is it Russia? Is it COVID? Is it global warming? Uh, you know, is it, um, is it uh, North Korea? What is it? What's the greatest threat to humanity? And, and I think there's probably a lot of different views on that, but I'd like to ask that question this morning. What is the greatest threat to humanity? What is the greatest enemy of humanity? <laughs> Chuck, you're giving my sermon away, man. Don't tell them. Did you see my notes? No. I love it. What is the greatest threat to humanity? Uh, keep your finger in Genesis 9. We're going to be there, but I want you just to really quick uh, take a quick trip with me to the book of Mark chapter 2. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels here. I just want you to see something really quick as we consider this question. In Mark chapter 2, we jump right into the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's actually towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum, this little fishing town where he uh, spent so much time ministering with Peter and the other disciples. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. That's not his home. He was homeless. I think it was probably Peter's home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now, you can imagine the scene. You've seen this probably in Hollywood movies and things like this. You know, it's crowded. It's crazy. There's lots of people pressing in, and Jesus is preaching. So uh, people are out the door listening to Jesus preach. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, stop right there for just a minute. This is amazing because here comes this man who literally can't walk. He's physically paralyzed. And you would ask the question, what is this man's greatest need? Walking, right? What is the man there for? He's there because he heard that this Jesus can heal people and perhaps he could get up and walk. And so you would expect, uh, you would be right to expect that as they bring this paralytic um, through the roof to Jesus, he would say something like this. Uh, Do you believe? Yes, then your faith has made you whole or something like that. Rise up and walk. And that's what you would expect Jesus to do because it seems like this guy's chief problem is that he can't walk. But you got to love Jesus. He just never does what you think he's going to do. What does he do instead? Instead, he says, my son, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, how interesting is that? Now, of course, the Pharisees are incensed by this, right? Why? Because only God can forgive sins. Who is this man that he thinks he can forgive sins, that he can declare the forgiveness of sins? So the Pharisees, they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him with themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now listen to what he says. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now what Jesus is is implying there is that the more serious thing that's just taken place, the more intense thing, the more important thing, the prime thing that's happened is that this man has been forgiven of sin. 
That's the more important thing. That's the reason Jesus came was for the forgiveness of sin. But Jesus says, and you're familiar with this story, right? He said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, take your bed, and go home. And he rose up immediately. Okay, what's my point here? My point is that Jesus in this moment is identifying the real need of humanity. The real need of humanity is freedom from sin. The chief enemy of humanity is the reign of sin. Why does that matter and how does that pertain to our text? Our text is very interesting because it is the end of the Noah story. And the end of stories matter, right? If any of you are storytellers, you know that the way that you end a story matters. Now, of course, this isn't the end of the story in the Bible, but it is the end of Noah. It's the end of the Noahic material. And you, you would think that the, that the author would sort of end on a high note, end on an optimistic note. Hey, you know, God just basically judged all of this sin through this, this universal global flood here. Um, so let's end on a high note. We got Noah. He seems like a good guy. He's a man full of faith. He's got his, his nice little home school family that, that, that was boat schooled for a year, so surely there's nothing evil that followed into this new world. We got a fresh new world that's just been given a, a massive bath, and what a, what a high note we're going to end on, right? Think again. Think again. That's not quite the note that the biblical author chooses to land on when he concludes the story of Noah. What we have here is we actually have probably one of the greatest illustrations in the Bible of the continuation of sin's reign on earth. Sin is reigning. Did you know that? And either you serve it or you serve someone else. But you can't serve both. There is a master in this world that, that many still live for, and that master is called sin. Romans says that sin reigned from Adam to Moses, and sin continues on this world to continue to reign. It is the greatest enemy of humankind. It is the reason Jesus came. Jesus healed people, but he healed primarily to validate who he was and what he came to do. And to foreshadow that, the, that that one point, all healing will take place. There will be no more sickness and no more death. But Jesus' primary concern was the sin of humanity. That is the chief enemy. So what is this passage that I'm talking about? Well, let's take a look at it. It's pretty interesting. I'm not going to lie. It's like the ultimate hillbilly text. Okay? I'll just, I'll just put it like this. You know, you basically got Noah, who was the ultimate hillbilly, and he got totally drunk on Bud Light while he was watching NASCAR, ended up naked in his tent, and, and, uh, and Ham, of course, was like, hey, dad's naked again. You know, what do we do? I mean, that's basically what's going on. I hate to make light of it, but it's, it's kind of silly. It's kind of a funny thing. Sometimes we read things in the Bible, and we're like, what is that? Seriously? Like Noah, a righteous man, the guy that God picked to save out of all of humanity is naked in his tent because he got plastered? What in the world do we do with that? I mean, you're reading your morning devotions, right? And you're like, how do I interpret that? Let's just get into it, okay? Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Take note of that. It's extremely important. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth 
were dispersed. Okay, in summary, we have all of humanity now funneled into a new progenitor, a new father of humanity named Noah. So all of us, in case you were wondering, all of us trace back to one man. Noah and his three sons. Next week, we'll look at what's called the table of nations, where the spreading out of humanity, and we can literally look and see how every nation that we now know traces back to one of these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll look at that more next week. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of soil. In other words, he began to be a farmer. This is a new occupation for Noah. He was a boat builder for a lot of his life. And now he says, I'm going to try something different. Uh, and there's really deep theological significance to that, by the way. If you remember, God's command to humanity was that they would go and cultivate the earth, that they would take what God created and that they would actually make it um, bring forth fruit. That's what Adam did. Adam was a, a farmer in many ways. He was a caretaker. And so Noah's doing what God intended for Noah to do. And he plants a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, there's no more details than that. And you can read commentary after commentary after commentary. They'll say, well, this implies that. And there's some pretty gnarly stuff that they make suggestions that is happening here. But let's just get real. We don't know. But we don't even need to know. Because the reality is he's ashamed. He's dishonored himself. He's put himself in a situation that is dishonoring. And just to put it in a a catchy phrase, inebriation always leads to humiliation. Does it not? When was the last time you saw a plastered drunk person and they didn't end up looking like a fool? I mean, it's just the reality. So Noah, in getting drunk, his, his, his guardrails are down and, and he's, he's willing now to do something that he maybe wouldn't do normally. And he, he shames himself in this particular way. But what's so interesting is that the, the author doesn't put the emphasis on Noah's sin. Oh, it's there, and we need to talk about it. We need to see it. But the emphasis doesn't seem to be on the sin of Noah. The emphasis seems to be on what happens next. And Ham, the youngest son of Noah, the father of Canaan, notice he says the father of Canaan again. There's some reason for that. Saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Okay, now what's the big deal about that? Can we just get real? I mean, so, like, what would you do? You walk in the tent, and there's you know naked pops, and you're like, hey, hey, Shem and Japheth, you know, like what's implied here is that he made a mockery of his father. This is the implicit reality. Okay, he saw his father, and rather than 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 dealing with the situation, rather than dealing with his father's shamefulness, he exposes it. He makes fun of it, and then he goes to his brothers to try to pull them into the inside joke. That's kind of the implicit reality that's going on here. Shem and Japheth took a garment. And laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward. And they did not see their father's nakedness. You know, these these two older brothers had a split second to make a decision. Ham comes running up. Hey, guys, you'll never guess what. (laughs) You'll never guess what I just found dad doing, right? And Shem and, and, and Japheth have a split second to make a decision. Are we going to jump into the humor of this situation or are we going to do the right thing? And they did the right thing. And, you know, just a quick side note here. um, Sometimes you only have a split split second to do the right thing. And sometimes, you know, an opportunity to join into sin is thrust upon you. And how do you know that you're going to do the right thing in that time? You practice. You practice holy decisions. Shem and Japheth, without even a thought, they instantly do the right thing because they had practiced holy decisions. And God honored them for that. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Ham. Wait, no, that's not what he says. Cursed be Canaan. That's weird. Why is he cursing Canaan? Ham's the one that went and exposed him. Canaan's his son. We don't even know if his son was born yet at this point. I mean, this is bizarre. Right? Cursed be Canaan. Now, what Noah's about to do here is he's about to speak for the first time, by the way. It's the only time we ever hear Noah say anything. He doesn't say anything any other time. Noah's about to open his mouth, and he's about to pronounce um, a curse, or what I would actually think more appropriately is a prophecy about the reality of what's going to happen from Ham's, uh, Ham's lineage. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. In other words, he's going to be a servant to Shem and Japheth. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. He particularly blesses Shem, um, which, by the way, is where we get the word Semite. Okay, have you heard the phrase anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish? So Shem was the descendant of Abraham, which was the father of the Jews. Okay, so note that. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And we'll get back into all that and, and we're going to press on that a little bit more. Little bit, little bit more. Oh, by the way, just consequentially here, a uh, little point on the importance of good biblical interpretation. This verse was taken in the 1800s by white slave owners as a proof text to why we should be able to go over to Africa and import slaves. Because, see, the descendants of Ham populated largely Africa and Egypt and Palestine. Um, so, so they said, see, th- this, is a, this is an eternal promise here. So therefore, the descendants of Shem and Japheth somehow, it's bad biblical interpretation, first of all. Because the, the, the cursing is for Canaan, by the way particularly, not for all the descendants of Ham. We can get into that, but my point in this is very simple. Biblical interpretation matters. It really matters, and some really heinous things have been thought up by people that were looking to continue in sin, and they wanted to use the Bible to prove it. Okay, That's just how pervasive sin is. Now look at how it ends. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived, by the way, almost up to the point of Abraham. He lived a really long time. These people had a lot of overlap. There was a lot of exchange of understanding of things that had happened. So, you know, Noah, for 350 years, was a firsthand account of God's judgment of the world. It's not as though they forgot. How did Abraham know that God was real? How did Abraham know, uh, you know, well, well, he also could have interacted to some degree with Noah. So just keep that in mind. But after the, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, now... We're going to stop there. Thus ends the righteous man, Noah. This is how he ends. And it's really sad how many times in the Bible, righteous men and women, the Bible calls them righteous, by the way. I mean, Noah's in the hall of faith. Okay, the Bible calls him a faithful man. Um, that their end is embarrassment. That their end is actually far worse than their beginning. I think of David. You know, it's not a given, it's not an assumption that because you're faithful at one point that you're going to be faithful later. Noah, unfortunately, who was the man that chose to build the boat, trust trust the Lord and give his life to the Lord later on, fails miserably. And it's recorded for us to see it. So we need to ask some hard questions of this passage as we interpret it. By the way, we are a, um, an exegetical church, which means that we seek to exegete the scripture. So rather than me coming up here and telling you um, things that you agree with, I'm going to come over here and tell you what the Bible says. 
Okay, so, so how we do that sometimes is we ask the right questions. So how do, you in, how do you interpret a passage like this? Well, you ask the right questions. Let me give you a few that we need to think about. First of all, um, why is this such a harsh response to what seems to be such a trivial moment? I mean, really, like he, he laughed about his dad, you know, being drunk and naked. I mean, what, what, is that really seriously? Like, okay, why is that? Uh, why is the emphasis on Ham's sin rather than Noah's sin? Surely Noah was just as sinful here as Ham. Why is Canaan mentioned when he was not even the perpetrator? Why is Canaan the one being cursed here? And then lastly, why, why is this the note that the author closes the flood material on? Why this note? I mean, wh- wh- what is the author of Genesis trying to get us to understand here? We, we, just, we had this optimistic moment where God is judging sin and he's picked his righteous man and he's starting over and he has a new world and then all of a sudden, instantly, right out of the gate, we see human failure. What is he trying to get us to see? So if you're an outline person, I'm just going to give you three things to consider. Three things that I believe the author is trying to get us to understand in this passage. Three things the text calls us to see, particularly about sin and, it, and its, its reign over humanity. Are you with me? Number one, we need to see that human sinfulness is much worse than we realize. It's way more pervasive than we realize. I believe this is actually the primary point that we need to walk away getting from this passage. You know, you would think, you would think that Noah, more than anybody, would nail it, right? Did anybody understand more clearly the severity of where sin leads than the man, the only man besides his sons, to survive God's judgment? You would think that Ham and Shem and Japheth, the ultimate homeschooled family, which was, and I'm not mocking homeschoolers, by the way. I was one, okay? And we homeschool our kids, just so you know. Okay, but the reality is this, these kids were boat schooled, right? Like they spent their time insulated in many ways from the evil that God was going to judge. And now there's no one around to corrupt them. You know, there's no, it always cracked me up when I was a kid and, uh, and someone's kid would, in the church would do something really bad and the mom would just go, I just can't imagine who told him to do that. I just can't imagine who gave him that idea. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Your kid's a sinner. You should hear how your kid talks when you're not around, right? Like, we think we're insulating people from, we think we're insulating our kids from sin. But guys, I'm going to make this really simple. Here's the reality. Sin survived because sin got on the boat, didn't it? Because sin's favorite host is a sinful human being. That's why sin survived the flood. It survived the flood because it lived within the hearts of Noah and his wife and his kids. And even though these kids were insulated from most of the wickedness of the world, guess what? The wickedness came out of them. And just a little application here. Don't assume because your kids are not allowed to watch some certain thing that they don't know certain things and that they aren't struggling with certain things. Don't assume that. Don't assume because you've created this really, you know, this really uh, uh, sort of conservative and, and, and walled-in environment for your child that they aren't still dealing with sin. They are. And you need to help them to think about their sin in a gospel-centered way, which is what we're going to teach you to do here, hopefully. Okay, sin survived because sin got on the boat. And what the author's trying to do is you're trying to connect uh, in your mind a straight line from Adam to Noah because you see there's some real similarities. There's some real symmetry to the fall of Noah here and the fall of Adam. For one, they were the prototype of humanity. 
They were the first human. For two, they were both farmers. And for three, they both fell to fruit. Isn't that interesting? Watch out for fruit, man. That's why there's the fruit inspection station when you go into California. Got any fruit? Thank you. Okay, that's the point, right? No, they both fell to fruit. Interestingly, both of their sin exposed nakedness. We thought about that. And interestingly, sin immediately spread to the first generation. With Adam, we had Cain slaying Abel. With Noah, we have Ham. Sin immediately passes through. Why? Because Romans tells us that sin reigned from Adam to Moses and continues, and everyone in between is affected because sin is ruling this world at present. You are either a slave to sin or you are free. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the point the author is trying to get you to see is the severity and the seriousness of sin, that sin is far worse than you can possibly imagine. It was so bad that within, I don't know how many years it was, but within a few years of God's global judgment, sin is continuing to be pervasive on the earth. God keeps all that in mind. He keeps all that in mind. And one more thing I just need you to think about here. One of the questions we always ask when we interpret the Bible is, what did this mean to the original audience, right? That's good biblical hermeneutics. Well, who was the book of Genesis written for primarily? It was written for the Israelites who were about to go in and take the land promise of Canaan. Now, I asked you earlier, why does the biblical author keep mentioning Canaan? Why is that the emphasis of the curse? Why is that the emphasis of the prophecy, the son of Ham named Canaan? And the answer is actually very simple. The answer is that Genesis was written primarily to Israelites who are standing at the precipice of the Jordan River about to go in and do what God said to do, which was to take out the Canaanite people and to remove them from the land. And I can imagine the question on their mind is, really? Why do we get the land? And what if we don't get rid of them completely? What if we keep some around? The whole book of Joshua and ultimately the whole book of Judges and the whole Old Testament is really the result of the failure of Israel to fully remove the Canaanites from their land. Did you know that? When you read the Old Testament, you will notice God said to the Israelites, I want you to go in, I want you to take your land, and I want you to remove the sin completely from the land. And they didn't do it. And God said, if you don't do it, the Canaanites will become a snare to you. And that's exactly what happened. And I'll summarize the whole Old Testament for you. Ready? Israel didn't get rid of Canaan, and Israel became Canaan. They became Canaan. They adopted their gods. The Canaanites were terrible. You know, a lot of people have an issue with the idea of the Israelites removing Canaan, and I understand why. But people don't understand how bad the Canaanite culture had really gotten. First of all, Sodom and Gomorrah. Ever heard of it? Those were Canaanites. The Canaanites literally at the peak of their religious um, immorality were literally burning their children to a god named Melech, a false pagan god. These were, this, this was bad. And you know what's funny? It's not funny. But you know what's crazy? Israel became just like him. Israel left some of them, and because they left some of them, they adopted their religious. There's one word I want you to remember. It's a very important word, and it's very applicable to us, because um, guess what? We're still sacrificing our children um, on the altar of convenience in this culture. There's a very important word I want you to know, and it's syncretism. Can you say that? 
Syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism, I think, is the fall, or will be the fall, of, me- of much of what is Western evangelicalism. And that is not where you ditch your religion. No, you don't do that. Israel never ditched their religion. They kept it. And then they imported bits and pieces of other religions, and they just put them all together. There was something like only like 50 to 100 years in Israel's history where there wasn't a pagan god in the holy place in the temple. They had their cake and ate it too. The Canaanites allowed and influenced the Israelites in a way where the Israelites ultimately became the Canaanites. And God had to remove them. What's my point here, Sam? Why am I going on in this? Okay, my point is very simple. Sin is very serious. And the Israelites are standing on the the precipice of about to go into Canaan, and God wants to remind them of what will happen if they don't take it seriously. It's serious. It's not to be played with. So first of all, human sinfulness is much worse than we realize. Secondly, human sinfulness is much more predictable than you realize. I want to just take another look at this passage, and and, and I want you to see just some of the patterns of sinfulness that you and I all sort of wrestle with, uh, just like Noah did, just like Ham did. I want you to see the pattern of Noah, first of all. There's a few things Noah did, and as I was reading this and as I was praying about this this week, I'm like, whoa, there I am. You know, I see Noah's sin, I see me. Uh, so, so see the pattern of Noah. Uh, Noah, first of all, like Noah, we get drunk on our own grapes. What do you mean by that? We get drunk on our own grapes. Here's the reality. God blessed Noah. Wine in the Old Testament, believe it or not, is actually a symbol of blessing. It's a sign of fruitfulness. Man, Noah made some good wine. Praise the Lord. What did Jesus do when he was at a wedding? He made some good wine, right? So, so God is not anti-wine, okay? God is not anti-wine. But the reality is, is that Noah took a good thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a pastor here. Noah took a good thing, and he made it a God thing, and it became a bad thing. You see where I'm going here? He took a blessing of God that was made to be something to worship God with, and he began to worship it instead. And he gave the rights, listen to me, he gave the rights, he gave the control, he gave the rule over to his sin in that moment. God loves to give you good things, doesn't he? He loves to give you beautiful kids, beautiful relationships. Sometimes he just blesses. He doesn't bless because we have enough faith. He doesn't bless because we do enough good things. God just blesses. He even blesses sometimes the wicked. He's good. He loves to give gifts, okay? Uh, But but he gives gifts in hopes that we will worship him for the gifts. And what we do is we take the gifts and we make the gifts the object of our worship. God gave Noah a great gift, and, and Noah ultimately used that gift to derail him. So I would just challenge you to think about... What are the things that God has given me and they've gone from being a platform of praise to being the, the, the purpose of praise, the thing that I now focus, the, the thing that I now think about. So I see myself in Noah. I also see myself in Noah because like Noah, good times cause us to forget the severity of sin, don't they? Noah was in a moment of, of kind of rest and leisure and, and, and everything sort of seemed good and he's making good wine and everything's great. So hey, just let your guard down. Same thing happened to David. David's on top of his roof. Things are good. He stays home from war. He takes a glance. He takes another glance. And now he's wrecked. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is the reality. He lets his guard down. And Noah lets his guard down here. He's lulled to sleep. 
Remember what God said to Cain? Cain's sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to have you. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? Crouching at the door means that sin is a predatory animal, appearing, trying to appear smaller than it is so that it can get its teeth into your jugular, basically. That's what sin does. That's how sin works. So Noah let his guard down, and also, like Noah, we assume the tent keeps our sin contained, don't we? I think Noah thought as he was shutting the doors and having another glass, I think he thought, you know, I'm in the tent. It's cool. It's good. I'm in the tent. It's not going to affect anybody. You know, my sin is contained. I've managed it. We are very good as humans at sin management. And many times it's not that we are free from sin. It's just that we've managed it. It's in the tent. Don't let it out. But can I just get real with you? It comes out. It comes out. Noah thought he was good. He thought he was in the tent. Ham exposes him. And it leads to shame and pain and cursing and slavery and all kinds of wickedness. The sin just completely grows and metastasizes at this point. So don't assume because it's in the tent that you're good. So see the pattern of Noah. Also see the pattern of Ham here. We see Ham doing some very predictable sinful behavior. First of all, he's delighting in the exposure of someone else. Man, when I think about our culture and I think about what most people spend most of their time scrolling through their phone looking at, it's the delight of the exposure of someone else. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what happened to this person? I mean, what Ham is doing is a very, is very, uh, the very typical sin of humanity. He's, he's delighting in the failure of his superior. We love to see people that we think maybe are better than us fail because it makes us feel better, don't we? He's exposing his father. He also found entertainment in wickedness. Now, guys, ah, I feel like a fire and brimstone preacher this morning, but you know what? This was so convicting to me. This was so convicting to me because what Ham did is he looked in the tent and he saw something corrupt and he saw sin and he saw something evil and he made it fun and light and entertaining. And God, I just, how many times did we do that? How many times did we look at the very things that Christ came to die for? And we delight in them. Can I be honest? That's syncretism. That's saying, yeah, we like what the world has, and we like what Christ has, and we're going to just kind of cram the two together. I was very convicted of that this week. You know, Philippians 4.8, it says, whatever is good, right? Whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, what is a good report? Think of those things. It's a very basic thing, but what are you filling your mind with? Now, those are all the practical things, okay? I also want you to see the blessing of bringing dignity to the exposed. There is a blessing in bringing dignity to the exposed. I think of Jesus in John chapter 8. He sees the woman caught in adultery, and what does he do? He brings dignity into that situation. May we as Christians be those that don't rejoice in the failures of others, don't rejoice and delight in the sinfulness of others, but that we would be others that walk into the tent backwards and kindly and graciously cover people. We don't cover sin, but we cover sinful people, amen? We don't cover up sin, but we do help people deal with their struggle. Now, let me just say this, and I transition here. This, the point of this passage is not a cute parable for, you, for me to tell you how to be a less sinful person. That's not the point of the passage. Now, there's some good practical things here. Hey, let's not get drunk on our own grapes. Let's, let's not think we have our sin kept in the tent. There's some good practical things here, but that's not the point of the passage, the point of the passage is not just to help you say, hey, be Shem and Japheth, don't be Ham. That's legalistic teaching. 
Okay, now there, there's some truth to that. I don't want to be Ham. I don't want to be the dude that gets, you know, that, that brings and introduces all this sin into my family and all of my life because I chose to. I don't want to be Ham, but I also want to recognize that the point of the passage is not be a good person, don't be a bad person. And most people read the Old Testament that way, you know? Be a David, don't be a Saul. Okay, well, that's, that's true, but that's not the point. Well, what's the point, Sam? Okay, the point in number three, if you're taking notes, our third point is simply this. So not only, just review, not only is human sinfulness much worse than we realize, and not only is human behavior more predictable than we realize, but lastly, humanity's new prototype is far greater than you realize. What this passage should do in us is it should leave a a very simple sense of disappointment. That, That even though God picked another Adam, he failed again. And it should cause us to go, Man, is there ever any hope? Because I see myself in Noah. I see myself doing the same thing that Noah did. And then, we, and then we see Ham, and I see myself in Ham, and I see myself doing the same thing. What it's supposed to do, what, what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to bring a sense of hopelessness in you that we need a better Noah. Don't we? Because Noah's blood flows in my veins. I do the same things. I take God's gifts and I make them God's. I I do the same things. We need a better Noah because Noah's blood flows through my veins. Flip over really quickly to Romans chapter 5, and I just want to read a chunk of scripture to you here because this is so beautiful. This is what the author of Romans is trying to get across. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now listen, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, here's where Paul's going to start to make his point. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following uh, many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Listen, he makes it real clear. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking of Christ, leads to justification and life for all men. Okay, let me just make it really simple in case you missed it because I know there's a lot of Pauline wordage in there, okay? Sin survived the flood because sin got on the boat. Sin got on the cross and it didn't get off. It died. Sin may have survived the flood, but sin died on the cross. Does that make sense? You're saying, well, but sin is still prevalent. Sin is still around us. Sin is still something I can, I can choose to do. Yes, that's true because we're living in this kind of weird middle space. But the reality is for those who are in Christ, sin is conquered. Sin is dead. It is put to death. Why? Because we have a better Noah. We have a better prototype for a better humanity. What's a prototype? It's the first type. Adam wasn't our savior. Noah wasn't our savior. Jesus is the savior. And we now have his blood flowing through our veins. 
And he is a better farmer of a better vineyard who makes better wine and has better children. And he's bringing forth a better world after a better judgment. He's the better king. He's the better human. And if you are in Christ, you have his blood flowing through your veins. Noah's not your father. Stop acting like him. Adam's not your father. Stop acting like him. Sin has no power over you. If you're in Christ, you only choose to give it power. You are free in Christ. You are true, new progenitor of a true new humanity. Isn't that good news? That's the point of the passage. It's disappointing because no is a disappointment. And your life's disappointing because you're a disappointment. And Jesus is not a disappointment. And your life will not be disappointing when your life is about him instead of yourself. Keep Living life for you, and you'll keep being disappointed. Keep living out of your own strength, and you'll keep being disappointed. You'll keep being like Noah. You'll keep failing. So what, Sam? You're getting all excited about what? What does that mean? Every week you tell us that it's all about Jesus. Every week you say, well, okay, well, the point of this passage is Jesus. So what? So what do I do today? So what do I do this week? Because I'm still sinning, and I'm still struggling, and I'm still failing, and I'm still like Noah, face down drunk in the tent, and I'm exposed, and there's shame. And what do I do with all that, Sam? I know I'm forgiven, but what about my sin? What do I do with it now? Well, let me give you three counterintuitive actions that I want you to take this week from this passage that will help you to walk in the victory of Christ over sin's reign. Three practical counterintuitive actions. I want you to write them down. I want you to think about them. I want you to practice them. Number one, this is totally counterintuitive. Be exposed and you will be clothed. Be exposed and you will be clothed. Everything in you wants to keep your sin in the tent. We are sin managers. It's fight or flight. Why would I want to bring something out that would bring shame to me? Keep the the tent flap closed. It's what the enemy wants you to believe. The irony of that is the enemy wants you to keep the tent flap closed. He's simultaneously the one opening the door and exposing you to shame you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy you with your sin and by your sin. He hates you. Did you know that? The enemy hates you. Why does he hate you? Because you belong to Christ. Even if you're not a Christian, he hates you. Why? Because you bear the image of God. And he hates God. And he wants to use the power that sin has over you to hurt you, expose you, and shame you. So you're saying, Sam, how can I possibly open the tent? You know why it feels scary to open the tent? Because all you're thinking about is what Satan will do with it. You know what makes it not scary? When you understand this, listen to me. Jesus walks into the tent backwards. He's kind. He is not ham, exposing and shaming. He walks into the tent backwards. And then you know what he does? He's so kind. He clothes you with righteousness. He doesn't publish to the nations. He doesn't condemn you. Jesus walks into your shame. He walks into your tent, no matter what's in there, and he clothes you with righteousness. We shut him out. You know, all of our sin as Christians is a failure to believe the gospel. That's all it is. Sin's been paid for. You can have freedom, but we shut the tent doors because we think God is harsh. And we forget what he did to Adam and Eve when they exposed their nakedness. What did he do? He clothed them. What did he clothe them with? In sacrifice. And as Christians, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So you can open the tent. And you can let him in. 
Isn't that amazing? He's so good. He's so kind. If you want to be clothed, you need to be exposed. Second counterintuitive action here is that if you want to be free, you've got to be a slave. What? If you want to be free, you've got to be a slave. There's a lie that our culture is telling you, and that is freedom means you get to do whatever you want. That's actually not freedom. Did you know that you are a creature? means that you were created, and that means that you will never become someone that doesn't have need. And because you have need, you will always have, you will be a slave to something. You're, right now, you're a slave to food. You can't, eat, you can't live without eating. You're a slave to water. You can't live without water. You're a creature. Get over it. Okay, you're a creature. You have need. And what's so funny is we think, you know, uh, a lot of people, uh, they look at Christianity and think, well, that's, that's just like, that's restricting. I want to have the freedom to live with whoever I want to live with and sleep with whoever I want to sleep with and do whatever I want to do and think however I want to think. And the world believes they're free, but what's so funny is they are slaves to sin. They're slaves to sin. The only time you are ever free is when you take your freedom and you give it to Christ. And you say, I will be a slave to you. When is a fish most free? He's free to jump out of the water, right? Is he free on land? It's very basic. No, he's free when he's in the water. You are a creature. And you were created to live in a certain way in a certain world according to God's design. And you think you're free by shirking that design? It's not. It's slavery. You are free when you submit and surrender to the king of the universe that designed all this in a particular way for a particular person. And I just want to tell you, if anyone in here feels like they're a slave to sin, it's because you haven't tapped yet. You are a slave to sin. Become a slave to Christ. He's better than your sin. He's a better master. Sin will destroy you. It seeks to destroy you. We got an entire Bible that reminds us of how sin destroys people, don't we? The Old Testament is one big story about how sin destroys humans. But the point of the Bible is about how Christ came to be a better master, to reign over a better kingdom. As a Christian, sin is not your master. The way that you become free is to do what Paul did. He called himself a doulos. He said, I'm a slave of Christ. He's sitting in prison. He's sitting in chains. And he's like, I'm not a slave to Rome. He said, I'm in these chains because I'm obeying Jesus. He is my master. He is my ultimate master. And for many of us, the thing holding us in our sin isn't just shame. The thing holding us in our sin isn't just fear. It's a lack of surrender. Can I just say this? Sometimes God will graciously bring you to your knees. He will. Sometimes God will open the tent because he needs you to be free. He wants you to be free. Freedom is not letting sin have its way with you. Freedom is not letting sin control you. Freedom is serving Christ in totality. That's freedom. So it's counterintuitive, but if you want to be free in here, you've got to be a slave to Christ. Amen? And lastly, this is just a short point here. Third counterintuitive reality. If you want to walk forward, you've got to walk backwards. If you want to walk forward, you've got to walk backwards. What do I mean by that? I just want you to think about how silly and how clumsy and how foolish Shem and Japheth felt walking backwards in a tent. I'm just imagining stepping on my son's Legos, you know, like, like they do every night when they go. It's like, it just probably felt silly. What Jesus said was he said, come follow me, and everyone will basically say you're walking backwards. The world around you will see the decisions that you're making to honor God, and they're going to say, you're backwards. 
you're weird, you're wrong. And you know what you tell them? Actually, you're backwards. <laughs> That's the reality. We live in a world that is so twisted as to what is good and what is right and what is correct and what is true that they all think we're just idiots walking backwards. But the reality is we know they are walking backwards and we are walking forwards. Shem and Japheth made a decision to honor the Lord. And it looked like they were walking backwards. You're going to have to make decisions. If you want to put your sin to death, you have to make decisions and people are going to look at you like you're an idiot. Really? You're quitting that job? You're, you're, you're choosing to, to move out with your, the person you're dating? You're choosing to not sleep together? Are you well, you got to drive, test drive the car, right? You're an idiot. You know? You're choosing to, to listen to this thing, this ancient book that we know was just written by men? You're, you're an idiot. Like, you're, 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 you're foolish. To which we as Christians say, okay, we'll see. I know it looks like I'm walking backwards, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm really moving forward because I am honoring God with my choices, my decisions. If you want to live a life that is free where Jesus is ruling it, you're going to look weird. Get over it. I was, I was out on Cathedral Hills the other day, and I was thinking through my sermon, and I didn't even think about it, but I just realized I was carrying my Bible <laughs> on the trail. And I, like, I crossed one person that were like, hey, I like that book, good book, you know? And then I crossed about five or six other people that were like, like, is this guy going to come assault me, like, with the gospel? Like, oh, my gosh, he's holding a Bible. What a freak. You know? And I kind of, for a minute, I just was kind of like, oh, like, should I tuck it under my arm or something, you know? And I was like, no, I'm weird. Okay, I'm weird. I get it. I know it looks like I'm walking backwards, but I'm not. I'm serving the one that created this world in a certain way. It's called holiness. It's the mark of a believer. It starts with believing the gospel. It doesn't start with saying, be Shem, be Japheth. That just leads to more failure, which leads to more shame, which leads to more guilt, which leads to more hiding. Gospel freedom is, starts with Jesus in his perfect work, and you feel like you can open the tent because you're clothed in his righteousness instead of your works. If you're not clothed in his righteousness, you'll never open the tent. If you're clothed in his life, you will. And there's freedom in that, amen? Would you guys stand with me? Actually, you know what? You can stay sitting. I just want to see Jim stand up. <laughs> Sit down, Jim. Was that sinful? I don't know. Okay. Yes. Father, we thank you so much this morning for the grace of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are just like Ham, we are sinners. We are no longer defined by our personal actions. We are defined by the perfect life of Jesus Christ that has been imported and imposed over the top of our life. And because of that reality, God, we want to choose to live for you. We want to walk in freedom. So God, thank you for your grace this morning, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.